You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Good morning again. We're looking uh, this morning at uh, Luke chapter 4. We were in Luke chapter 4 last time. We're looking at these uh, passages where... Uh, Luke clearly, and led by the Holy Spirit, is clearly uh, working in, in kind of this editorial way, and he is uh, looking at the, the preaching ministry of Jesus. And, and remember, Luke is a letter that is written to a guy by the name of Theophilus. And Luke is like taking the preaching ministry of Jesus, and he's organizing them. He's, uh, he's putting, the, putting them together so that last week we saw not the first sermon that Jesus ever preached, but a sermon that was preached at Nazareth wherein Jesus was rejected. In fact, uh, they, uh, his hearers attempted to murder him. That was in Nazareth. And now we're going like 20, 20 miles or so uh, to the north, actually at a, at a lower elevation, closer to the Sea of Galilee, uh, to a city called Capernaum, which uh, ultimately is going to be the, the headquarters of Jesus' preaching ministry. And, and so we're looking this morning at a sermon in Capernaum as opposed to a sermon in Nazareth. And what Luke is doing is he's, he's, not, he's not just showing us uh, what Jesus preached, he's actually giving us a sense of the context. Uh, these are sermons that are delivered in a synagogue setting, and something happens on that Sabbath day when he's in the synagogue uh, preaching, and Luke helpfully gives us the setting of the preaching in Nazareth, and now the setting of his preaching in Capernaum. So that's what we're looking at this morning. It's in Luke chapter 4, and we'll begin at, uh, at verse 31. Uh, this, uh, this sermon has a lot to do with the authority of Jesus. That's what Luke is telling us. And so, uh, little theologians, I don't know how you draw authority. Um, I'm thinking maybe you draw it in terms of the work of a king, that God actually gives his son authority. He gives Jesus authority, but it's authority to do something and not just something, one particular thing. The authority that God gives to his only begotten son, Jesus, is an authority to do one particular thing in his earthly ministry. And that one particular thing is to shed light on, to proclaim the gospel of grace. I don't know how you draw that. So have fun. There might be a million things Jesus could do, but he has authority to do one thing. So our passage this morning is uh, Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse uh, 31. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, um, uh, Patrick and Justin have a Bible, they can get one to you. You know, I, I'm, I'm always going back to specific verses. It's uh, always, always helpful to have God's Word opened in your lap as I'm preaching. So uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 31 is where we'll begin. Let's first uh, implore our Heavenly Father that He teach us by His Spirit. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you that you have uh, equipped us that we might be edified and nourished through uh, the worship of your people as they gather together. And that equipping is by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you please come to us and would you uh, dwell in our speaker in such a way that as I preach, I preach not myself, 
but I preach uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, Spirit, would you dwell in the hearers, that the hearers, as the word comes to them, that um, my mistakes, that my stuttering would actually uh, go to the wayside, but that your uh, word would dwell largely in them and that they would be transformed by that word and strengthened as they go out into the new week. Holy Spirit, thank you for doing these two things to the glory of our, our Father in Jesus. Amen. So again, it's, uh, it's Luke uh, 4, uh, beginning at verse 31, go all the way to 40 t- for, to, through 41. Luke 4, 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who had any who were sick with various diseases, brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. This is the word of our Lord. I want to begin by asking you to consider... Uh, something that uh, I heard earlier this week. It was uh, a, uh, a news briefing, and the one who was presenting the news uh, began by saying this. She said, There's a large body of people in the world who have no country, who own no property other than their own clothing. This large body of people have uh, no industry in which they can work that they might gain income. And they have no access to permanent medical care. They have no access to uh, permanent uh, grocery stores. They uh, cannot own land that they might be able to farm it themselves. This large body cannot vote. They have no legal representation They are extraordinarily vulnerable, particularly to crime and injustice, and they are entirely at the mercy of their neighbors. And as a result of all of this, they are afraid, and they have no evidence that their future will be any brighter. And when a news story begins this way, uh, you take notice, but she goes on. Her name is Michelle Kellerman. And she says, there are 60 million of these people. 
She says that if they could be gathered into a nation, they would be the 24th largest nation in the world, uh, just behind uh, Italy. And she goes on to say that uh, half of them are children. And as I was listening to this story, it just arrested my attention. It captured me. And I wanted to know who these people were. And in truth, it was earlier this month that the UN Refugee Agency released data that showed that uh, this is the number of refugees currently in the world, 60 million. Now, in terms of the research that the UN Refugee Agency has done over the past 50 some odd years, this is the highest number of refugees that uh, they have counted. There are some that speculate that uh, the last time the number of refugees was this high was probably during World War II, but there are some that suspect that not even during World War II were there as many refugees as we have now. That was the introduction to the, uh, the news story, but uh, Michelle goes on and she is uh, interviewing a man by the name of Antonio Guterres, who is the High Commissioner of the uh, UN Refugee Agency. And as she's uh, talking to this man, uh, about midway through the interview, uh, she says something that I could actually hear myself saying. And I don't know how seriously she meant it, but she said, you know, look, recently uh, there have been figures that uh, show that the world's population is 7 billion people, actually more than 7 billion. And she says, you know, is, is there a possibility, even an outside possibility, that this increased number of refugees is actually the same ratio to the world population as it's always been? It's just that, you know, there's so many people in the world today. And so the, the number is large, but so too is the number of people in the world, 7 billion. And I could just hear myself asking that. There's almost like it, it, that's a way of kind of lessening the blow of the presence of 60 million refugees. And uh, Antonio Guterres jumps right on the answer, and, and he, he says that's not the case He says, what we're seeing now is we're seeing this uh, unprecedented amount of conflict in the world. And he says that the conflict in the world is an increasing conflict. And the increasing conflict is due to poor governance and a misuse of power. Now, it's complex, right? Why are there 60 million refugees in the world right now? That's not an easy question to answer. But I just want to draw your attention to this man. I don't know anything about his faith background. But as he uh, studies the situation and he looks at the governments of the uh, nations that are thrusting these people out of those nations, he says there is a great deal of misuse of power. You know, maybe we don't like the idea of Jesus having authority because we're American Christians and we don't like the idea of anyone having authority but me. But it is staggering to me that uh, this man could look out at such an extraordinary problem and say, you know what, a misuse of authority has got to be part of the problem somewhere. It's got to be part of the problem somewhere. And what this, what this passage challenges us to understand is that Jesus isn't without authority. Jesus is with a very good authority. 
The authority that Jesus has is an authority to not display 60 million, but to draw 60 million into an eternal relationship with the Heavenly Father. And not just for a temporary time, but for all eternity. And before we're real quick to turn over authority, except the authority of ourselves, let's look at Jesus and consider what kind of authority he has, because the topic of, of, of authority comes up in this preaching ministry at Capernaum. And I want us to see that, and I want us to see this. I want us to see that the authority of Jesus is his authority to unfold the grace of God. The authority of Jesus is his authority to, to unfold or unfurl the grace of God. I want to begin by just offering this, that Jesus is absolutely nothing without authority. He's nothing without authority. In 2009, Richard John Newhouse says this about American Christians. He says, uh, weaving in and out of American Christianity is a radical and vaulting individualism that would transcend the creaturely limits of time and space and tradition and authority and even obedience to the received truth. What he's saying there is he's looking out and he's, he's noticing in American Christianity this great love of individuality and individuality that is even logically inconsistent in individuality that to Newhouse is so powerful, uh, we as individuals want to overturn the limits of time and space. He's speaking tongue-in-cheek there. But it's something we ought to pay attention to in American Christianity, that even as Christians, we tend not to give Jesus the authority that he has. Uh, how often is your only unquestioned authority your conscience? Just think about that. How many situations in your life can you look back and see that, boy, you know, even as a professing Christian during that season of my life, the only unquestioned authority was my own conscience? Or how about this? Uh, was there a time in your life where you can, you can just pick it out and discern it clearly now by God's grace that in that time in your life, your only unquestioned authority was your own happiness? Do you remember a time like that in your life? Where the only unquestioned authority, even as someone who professes faith in Jesus Christ, was your own happiness? Maybe... Your only unquestioned authority is, is your own hope for the future, your, your plan, your uh, scheme, as it were, for how your life is going to unfold before you. And sometimes your only unquestioned authority is your rational understanding of something. Your rational understanding of something. When is it in the church of Jesus Christ, particularly of American Christians, that we actually recognize that our only unquestioned authority ought to be the revealed Word of God? He has the right to tell us not only what to believe, but how to behave. And so John Richard Newhouse is looking at American Christianity, and he says, this is, this is just something that marks these American Christians. But in this preaching ministry of Jesus, look at verse 32. They were astonished at his teaching because his word possessed authority. There was something about the authority of Jesus, the confidence with which he spoke. And verse 36 says, they were all amazed saying, what is this word? It has authority and it has power. 
the audience knows that there's something about Jesus' teaching ministry that's unlike anything else they've ever heard, that it has this authority. Now, you could make the argument to me that, yeah, but you know what? A lot of the audience of Jesus' preaching ministry, they were scatterbrained and confused. For instance, the folks in Nazareth, they just wanted to murder him. Right, so why would you use those as your go-to people for understanding that Jesus has authority? And I think that that's a fair argument. How do we know this audience is trustworthy when they recognize that this man's teaching has authority and power? And Luke actually answers that question for us, almost as if Theophilus would ask the same thing. You know, you, you can't trust the audience well, what about the cosmic audience? What about the audience of the spiritual world? As Jesus uh, teaches, uh, it is the demons, the uh, uh, wicked spirits that actually understand that, yes, indeed, this man has authority. Uh, a, a demon uh, in the Bible is actually an angel, and, and it's an a angel, it's a spiritual being uh, that has rebelled against God. That's what a demon is. It is an angel that has rebelled against God. Uh, Jude verse 6 says, uh, these uh, evil spirits, they do not stay within their own position of authority. They do not stay within their own position of authority. They're rebellious uh, uh, angelic beings. However, in 2 Peter 2, they rebel against God, but they're not entirely free from God. Because in 2 Peter 2, Peter says that God keeps these demons, these evil spirits, these uh, evil angels, that God keeps them in, in bounds. He binds them up until their day of judgment. So they're bound in their ability to work, 2 Peter 2, 4. And they're bound for the time in which they'll actually be judged. The same verse. But be that as it may, Satan himself is actually the prince of the demons. Luke 11:15 uh, tells us this. So, so Satan is actually the prince of these demons, these angelic uh, evil spirits. And he is their ruler, and the evil spirits are actually, by, for God's glory, they're actually given some liberty around the ministry of Jesus, that even in that synagogue, there is a man there who is possessed by a demon. He's there and he's possessed by a demon. And what happens in this, uh, in this preaching ministry of Jesus at Capernaum is that the audience can not only hear the words of authority from Jesus, but they can actually see those words of authority displayed as a man who comes to a synagogue. Think about this, by the way. Why was he at the synagogue? Why do you think he was at the synagogue? We can only speculate, right? But it seems as though he was at the synagogue because he's, he's hoping to be liberated from this demon. That could be one reason. Some theologians say that the, the, uh, this person is at the synagogue because the evil one has driven him to the, to the synagogue that he might be tortured in the presence of others who believe in God. We don't know why this man is in the synagogue other than to show the glory of of God and Christ Jesus' authority. And if you look at verse 34, we know, we know that the spiritual kingdom understands that Jesus has authority because the first word that is uttered by the demon in the Greek and here in the ESV uh, is, is translated as just ha, but it could be understood as leave us alone. It's, it's a desperate appeal to be left alone 
by this person who has authority over them. And then going on in verse 34, asks if you come to destroy us. You see, if, if Jesus has no authority, he's just a Hallmark card. If he has no authority at all, he's just a Hallmark card because he comes and he, is, uh, he puts uh, Psalm, uh, I'm sorry, Psalm, Isaiah 61, 1 through 2 on a Hallmark card and he gives it to you. And you should feel good about that. But you shouldn't feel safe for all eternity because of it. Jesus actually has authority, and the authority is made known by his speech, but also made known by his actions. And the people in the audience of the synagogue in Capernaum, they understand it, but so too does the spiritual realm. So to say that Jesus has no authority is just not a tenable position. And I want to suggest to you that if you're uncomfortable with the authority of Jesus, his right to be your Lord and your master, I want you to be very careful with that notion. Because with this same authority that intimidates you, that becomes a boundary between you and Him, with that same authority that He possesses, He unfolds grace that you might be saved for all eternity. That exact same authority that threatens your own unquestioned authority in your conscience, in your happiness, in your hopes, in your rationality. That same authority that challenges those things is the same authority that opens the door to the gospel of grace and reconciles you for all eternity. Look, moving on, the, the authority of Jesus then, he, he has authority. What is it like? And I think there's three things that can be uh, discerned in the passage in terms of what this authority of Jesus is like. And the first thing is we see his authority in relation to his words. The second is in relation to his father. And the third is in relation to his hearers. Words, father, hearers. That's where I'm going in terms of discerning what kind of authority is this that Jesus has. The outline, by the way, is uh, there in the back of your worship bulletin. Uh, let's start with Jesus' authority in relation to his words. It's remarkable that the battle that takes place in this passage is a battle of words. It's a battle of words. I mean, Jesus actually speaks publicly. It can be understood. Do you think he has to speak? I mean, it, it seems as though that Jesus is the kind of man that could simply wave his hand as a Jedi, and then stuff would happen. But he uses words. He speaks that others might hear, including the one whom he's speaking to. And when Jesus speaks, he doesn't quote the Old Testament. That sounds almost unbiblical to say that, but, but look... Those of you who have a red-letter edition of the Bible, this is really easy. Just count how many times Jesus has spoken from Luke 1 to Luke 4. Eight times. And of those eight times, five occasions he quotes the Old Testament. But he doesn't here, does he? He doesn't quote the Old, the Old Testament. He speaks, and these words are new words. And he says in verse 35, Be silent. Be silent. It's one word in the Greek. With one word in the Greek, he can stifle the six or seven words of the demon. I didn't count his words. With one word in the Greek, he stifles the words of the demon. And then in verse 41, he rebukes them and would not allow them to speak. It's, it's a funny battle. It's a battle that just wouldn't look right on the big screen. I mean, there's no robots. There's no missiles. I'm just, it just doesn't look right on the big screen. It's words. 
The demon is speaking, and Jesus says, stop speaking, and he rebukes, and the demon can no longer speak. How remarkable is that? It's the actual word, the actual word that makes things happen, even though God doesn't have to use words at all. And this is important for this reason, because you would say, okay, well, fine, so what? Well, we don't want to diminish what God does with his words. God created with words. God created in a revelatory way. He created not just by making something that you can see, you can smell, you can witness. Even the way in which he created is revelatory. He's revealing himself. If you were there, you could hear God create. And when he was done creating, you could see what he created. He creates with words. When God comes to Abraham, how does he come to Abraham? He speaks to Abraham. The kind of conversations that Abraham would have had his whole life, God interjects into those conversations, and he himself speaks to Abraham. When God comforts, he comforts with words. When God hears the people cry, he responds to the people with words. Words. His words, Hebrews 4 says, are living and active. Ephesians 6 attaches the word to the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit is the word of God. And as the Spirit teaches us, according to 1 Corinthians 2, 4, that Spirit teaches us with words. Words matter. Words matter. You know that, right? You want to say that words matter because you have hurt people with your words. I hope that you can admit that. You have hurt people with your words. But I'm saying that words matter because words are a part of the delivery of the gospel of grace. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. Jesus was in the beginning. Jesus was listening to the words of the Heavenly Father. In fact, all things were made through him, through Jesus, and without him, without Jesus, was not anything made that was made. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus coming to us is coming as a word. And you this morning who don't spend time in God's word that you might understand him are missing his condescension to you. He doesn't have to speak with you in words, but he does speak with you in words. He doesn't have to send an ambassador, a preacher, but he does send a preacher in not only John the Baptist, but this morning I am serving a role as a preacher with words that are not my words. And the gospel of grace, Paul says, is the power of God for salvation. These words in particular mean something, just as all words mean something. So when we look at the authority of Jesus, we have to admit that his authority is accomplished through words. It's not hidden. He's public. He's making known what he is doing. The second thing that tells us about the authority of Jesus in this passage is not only the authority in relation to the words of Jesus, but authority in relation to his heavenly Father. It's remarkable that when the demons speak, they actually are pretty good theologians. They know something about Jesus that seems to have escaped the notice of everyone in the church at Capernaum and, by the way, everyone in the church at Nazareth. It was God himself who spoke 
audibly spoke so that others could hear at the baptism of Jesus that this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. He spoke. It was known. And yet, that message didn't make it into the synagogue of Nazareth or the synagogue of Capernaum. It's actually the demons who acknowledge who this Jesus is. I know who you are, verse 34, the Holy One of God. The Holy One that belongs to God, the demons know. And in verse 41, we're getting a plurality of responses from these wicked angels. And the plurality of response is that these demons say, demons plural, you are the Son of God. The intimacy of Jesus' relationship with the Heavenly Father is known in verse 41, not by one demon, but by a multitude of demons. And also in verse 41, we understand that they knew that he was the Christ. Now, we could ask this question, how do they know? How do they know? To be honest, I think we have to speculate to determine how the angels know. But verse 41, we know because Luke, empowered by the Holy Spirit, tells us that they know. Because Jesus, when he hears them, knows what they know. Remember, he is able to discern the reasonings of the human heart. He also discerns the reasonings of the demons. And verse 41 says that Jesus knows that they knew he was the Christ, the one who is anointed by God. I want to hold this up to you. The demons understanding that Jesus is the Holy One of God, the Son of God, the Anointed One of God, I want to hold that that portion up to you as good theology. Because they know that Jesus is the instrument of the Father's promise. That Jesus is doing something, but He's doing something that's derivative of the authority of the Heavenly Father. So that when Jesus exercises that authority, it is an authority that comes from the Heavenly Father to do the bidding of the Heavenly Father. Jesus is exercising authority to serve the Father's will. What is the Father's will? Galatians 3, or Genesis 3.15. The Father's will is to restore His people to Himself to bring his people to himself, to rescue them, to deliver them. We'll look at Isaiah 61 in just a moment. But this is the will of the Heavenly Father to rescue his own people. And that is what Jesus is doing. And the demons, they hear this. They understand who he is. They understand the Trinity better than the audience at Capernaum and the audience in Nazareth. They get it. They understand. So when we, under, when we look at Jesus' authority, we have to understand this authority in relation to the Father. Jesus is coming not to do His will, but to do the will of the Father. That the Father's people would be covered by His own blood. His sacrifice would be a lasting and eternal sacrifice for them that they might be rescued and secure for all eternity. That's what Jesus is doing. That's the exercise of His authority. He is the one, the Holy One of God, the Son of God, the only anointed one of God. And they understand. And Luke, as he tells the story to Theophilus, expects that to be a source of encouragement. Theophilus, you may be surrounded by people who place your Jesus in a box and say that he never existed, he never interacted in time and space, or to say that he existed and he is only servicing now as some kind of myth of some sort. Theophilus, you may be surrounded by people like that. But the spiritual world disagrees. The spiritual world knows him and is afraid of him. 
They understand that his authority is an authority in relationship to the Father. He is the very work of the Father's will to rescue his people. Okay, so the third thing is real quickly, not uh, Jesus' authority in relation to his words or in relation to his heavenly Father, but in relation to his hearers, because some people come to the synagogue presumably to hear Jesus. And we know that there are individuals around Simon Peter's mother-in-law, and they, on behalf of Simon Peter's mother-in-law, they implore Jesus that uh, Jesus would uh, help, that Jesus would heal her. And so we have this picture of people coming to Jesus. I mean, just look at the very end in verse 40. We have all these people that are actually uh, coming to Jesus, and they're coming to Jesus because they want to hear his words. They want to uh, taste and witness his authority. But then there are some who actually taunt Jesus, and that is the role of the demons, and that is also the role of the people in Nazareth who heard him preach. And what's remarkable is we have this divided audience. We have some that hear Jesus, pay attention to him, implore him like those in the household of Simon Peter. And then we have some that uh, are rebelliously disposed towards Jesus, that when they hear these words, when they see this authority, they're actually angry and they taunt him and they want him to leave. And Luke very slyly reminds us at this juncture, he says, the report about him went out. The report about him went out. And what's happening is, as this report about Jesus goes out, everyone is being asked to make a decision about Jesus. Everyone is being asked to make a decision about Jesus. Is he a charlatan? Is he a liar? Will you taunt him? Will you try and murder him? Is he simply a challenge to your authority that you then need to push to the side? Or will you listen to him? Will you receive his message? Will you receive the testimony about him? And this is is the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? Its beauty is in its offense, that everyone has to make a decision about the gospel. And us, as the body of Christ, we actually are told to go out into the world and make disciples of the nations. We're to proclaim this message, but you have to understand there's only two responses to this message. There's just these two responses. And as the report about Jesus goes out in Luke's setting, and as the report about Jesus goes out in our own setting, we need to be prepared for that. Not everyone is going to hear the gospel of Jesus with delight in their eyes. And part of that is, sure, I'm, saying, I'm stating the obvious, but it's right here in this passage. Luke is not setting up Theophilus to see that, you know, everyone is going to hear the gospel of Jesus and they're going to receive him warmly. Jesus is going to assert authority over their own unquestioned authorities, and that's going to hurt them. And some are going to be softened by the Spirit to say yes to the gospel, and some are going to be riled up. And and sometimes you're not going to know, but there's always a response to the gospel. And there will come a time when Jesus returns, and the response is made public, and everyone will know where everyone else stands. But for the time being, as Christians, we're called to be the kind of people that make a report about him, about him, about his exercise of authority and what he does. And praise be to God that this him, Jesus our Savior, speaks with words that we then can go out into the world and speak with words. Let me say something uh, quickly about uh, the purpose of this authority. I think the purpose of the authority of Jesus is actually in that first sermon. You know, Jesus is not simply up to a medical mission. 
Jesus is not just going out into the world that he might uh, heal the world of all of its sickness. There are some that are not healed by Jesus. There are some that never have that opportunity to be with him that he might heal them. So the, the ministry or the mission of Jesus is not a mission to heal the body, but it's rather a mission to heal, to heal the soul. And here's what I mean by that. When we go back to that sermon in Nazareth, and we understand that Jesus is looking at Isaiah 61, we understand that the authority that Jesus has is an authority that actually transcends a healing the body on earth. It's an authority that brings to body and soul eternal healing. And listen to these words. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And last week I said that phrase, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, in Isaiah 61-2, is a phrase that refers to Jesus proclaiming a message of his own death on the cross. A message in which by his sacrifice, by his sacrifice, will be reconciled to God in faith. What is the purpose of this authority of Jesus? I think we have to go back to Isaiah 61. And we see the purpose of Jesus' authority is to unfold the gospel of grace. So that people might actually come to Jesus, hearing his authority, believing in him, but not believing in a trite Jesus, but believing in a Jesus who really can save. He really can save. I go back to um, Antonio Guterres of the UN, recognizing that there is an awful lot of hurt and brokenness in these 60 million refugees almost as if they're being driven out into a world of homelessness. And he's keying in on an improper use of authority that has led to these 60 million refugees. And, and I want you to hear that Jesus has to have authority. If he doesn't have authority, this will not be the day in which Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 are actually fulfilled because Jesus won't have the, the authority to fulfill it. He won't have the authority to do it. And I want you to hear this morning that Jesus does have the authority. He has the authority to save you for all eternity. And not just you, but millions of others. Millions of others. Before we were real quick to remove the authority of Jesus, thank God that he has authority. And pay attention to his message. He is the only means by which you are saved. And he saves by having a relationship with his Father in which he performs the Father's will. He speaks about that will and he divides the audience, those who receive him in faith and those who rebel against him. This is his authority. Listen to his authority and be saved. The authority of Jesus is his authority to unfold or unfurl the gospel or the grace of God. Let's uh, give thanks for the gospel and then we'll confess faith together. Our Lord, we do thank you that you speak your word to us, that we would uh, hear, that we would understand that it would be in our language. We thank you for those who have been specifically called to be proclaimers of the gospel as they go out into the mission field. But Father, we're a part of that in Christ Jesus. We have this glorious message, a message that has saved us by your grace and a message that we can proclaim. And it feels thin because it's a bunch of words, 
and, and it feels uh, unreal because we're um, applying to one who has great power. But Father, you save by words. You save by words. Give us courage. In Jesus' name, amen.